Welcome to Triple Take, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books, films, and albums that shape them. I'm Carla Jean Whitley. I'm Edward Bowser. And I'm John Hammontree. And it is a bittersweet day here at Triple Take, which is a uh, polite way of saying that Edward Bowser is ripping my heart out and stomping on it because he is leaving us here at AL.com. Actually, he's already left us. Uh, he, we decided we were going to bring him back and send him off in style, but you are now over at Big Communications. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing over there, Edward. Yes, I am at Big Communications serving as a content creator, and that's just a fancy way of saying the guy who plays on social media all day and helps their clients get a digital voice. So that means that we're going to have a little shakeup here at Triple Take. Uh, I'm going to be moving into Edward's role to discuss music uh, much less eloquently than Edward does. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> and we are also bringing on Matt Scalisi, uh, who will be taking on my old role of talking about movies. Welcome to the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks for uh, for inviting me to be the, the successor to Ed. That's, that's a very big shoes to fill here. Well, if anybody's going to bring down King Koopa, it would have to be an Italian. So. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. How long have you been thinking of that line? Okay. I don't know if this Hammond Tree guy is going to make it through this podcast, but we'll do our best. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about what you do here at AL.com. Well, I, I have been at AL.com for about, I guess, four and a half years now. Um, so, I, I am a guy who has had a lot of different roles, uh, for which is probably true of anybody who's been here that long. Um, but, you know, I'm primarily always been involved in sports coverage here. It is, uh, it's been the course of most of my career is, is in sports journalism, but I've done kind of some non-traditional stuff for us. I've not just been kind of a, a reporter for us. I've done a lot of uh, things when it comes to kind of recruiting reporting I've done uh, I've done some video stuff for us and now that's kind of primarily my role is working on the video side uh, producing sports related video for al.com as, as a lot of people know we're, we're now kind of much more in the video business than we've ever been before so we've got a lot of that stuff to do and I'm uh, kind of working behind the scenes to produce a lot of that stuff so the only proper way to send off Edward is to interview him and get insight into the book, movie, and album that shaped your life, Edward. So tell us a little bit about your choices today. This was extremely difficult because it's one thing to be on the side of the table you three are on and it's another to be the focus. So I really wrestled for the longest time for my three picks. My movie, I wanted to go with Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze, <laughs> but I brought it down to earth a little bit and went with Malcolm X, which came out in the early 90s. It was a movie that just blew my mind as a child and has always stuck with me, and the lessons still resonate today. The book is Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. If you are not familiar with that, I can't wait to talk to Carla Jean about that later today. It's one that really, for me, it's my personal To Kill a Mockingbird. And then finally, music. Of course, the hardest, hardest, hardest decision because there are so many albums that I love, but one that might not be necessarily my favorite album, but one that has definitely shaped my music fandom is Missy Elliott's Super Duper Fly. And I can't wait to talk to John about that. So I think the only appropriate thing to do here now would be to have Matt face off against the final boss to defeat him <laughs> and take his rightful place in the podcast. So we're gonna start off the interview with you and Matt chatting about movies.
as Brother Malcolm said, we declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be given the rights of a human being, to be respected as a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence. By any means necessary. All right, Ed. My, my first episode up doing this. Yes. And I get to interview you about Malcolm X. <laughs> so no pressure here. But Good luck. Yeah. Homie. All right. So, so how old were you in 1992? <sighs> Do you remember? I, see, I am a writer, not a mathematician. <laughs> um, you were about 13. I had to be 12 or 13. Yeah. So, so you went and saw this in the theater. No, I didn't see it in the theater. Okay. I actually saw it at my aunt's house back. They had this thing back in the day called Blockbuster Video. Sure. And you could get these things called VHS tapes. Was this a two-taper? Because this is a long movie. It might have been a two-taper. Yeah. But we got the VHS, and I was very excited to see it because it was such a phenomenon in 92. Mm-hmm. Kids were walking around with the X hats, mm-hmm. that with the baseball caps, and I just felt so behind. I really wanted to see it, and... We watched it one afternoon at my Aunt Jackie's house, and it really, really touched me. Did you watch it? Were, were you with family members, like older family members? I was with her, and she was, Aunt Jackie was probably in her late 30s or 40s at that point, and then my younger brother, who probably would have been a good 9 or 10 at that point. So how much perspective did you get from family like while you were watching this and, and maybe just after, you know, when it made its first impression of mm-hmm. you, how much feedback and input that you get from other people in your life saying, oh, I remember this. Here's where I was when this happened. You know, here's my take on this movie. Well, after the watching of the film, there was a discussion with my aunt and her husband about kind of the perceptions and where they stood at the time of Malcolm X. But it's so funny because going into the movie, Malcolm X was almost like how we would see kind of a Kendrick Lamar or something today where he was a political figure we knew him as a cultural figure but he was almost like a cultural celebrity to me so this kind of humanized him in a different way so to hear their stories that were just really a couple decades out of his life combine that with the celebrity that was really swirling at the time in the mid-90s really put it into a deeper perspective for me yeah you mentioned the the kind of humanizing element of this movie i think one of the things that makes it kind of shocking to watch even now it's so different from what you typically get from a a biopic that mm-hmm. sort of, it's almost becomes such a such a tropey genre where we go and see this movie and somebody overcomes their struggles as a young person and it all works out well in the end and this is not a movie that feels like it needs to sugarcoat things certainly it's not a movie that always even cares to cast the the main character in the best possible light. I feel like it's very straightforward and it's not just telling this kind of easy to digest disnified story, right? It's it's very it's very human. And I think that's why it stuck with me so much. This was not the story of this guy came from this hard scrabble life and became this 
great leader and then he was assassinated and we all mourn. No, we saw that Detroit Red was a horrible person. And even when he ascended to become Malcolm X, he still had to learn and grow in that role. And then kind of like the last half of the movie, last third of the movie, we saw that he overcame his own prejudices um, within the um, Muslim community. So it was just so much growth and so much real poignant understanding. And it, as 12 or 13 year old, however I was, old I was, because I can't do math, at that point it was something that really stuck with me because it showed that even people that we consider icons and heroes are just as flawed as we are. But And at the same time, even though there, there's all of that element to it, I think especially the, the end of this movie, I, watching it and re-watching it last week, knowing I was going to be talking to you about right. it, I mean, the end of this movie has got to have made such an incredible impact on somebody that was the age you were when you watched it because we're... First of all, it's an incredibly unique ending of a movie yeah. because it's putting him in a modern context all of a sudden and, and showing all of these kids and saying, this is how he has affected this community today. But then you have this scene where Nelson Mandela is yep. is basically telling us, I don't know if it was in his own words, I don't know if Spike Lee wrote it, but this incredibly important historical figure is talking to us as we're watching it, saying, here's, here's why this is important. I've, honestly, I've never seen anything like that in a in another movie, um, and it, it really sticks out today. But that the end of that movie is particularly impactful, and I have to think that made an effect on you at that age. And you also have to remember, like, Nelson Mandela was probably literally like a two or three years out of jail at that point. Yeah. Like, this was not some <laughs> right. piece that was we're looking back at 10, 15 years ago. He literally just escaped apartheid. They were still wrestling with apartheid at that time. And the lessons that they were trying to give us were just so in your face and so poignant. Even today, even today, I'm going to take it here because even today, yes, please. when we talk about our people who happen to be running for office and are pushing this perception of those who have different religions than we do. And there are, when we are, when all Muslims are typecast, for instance, as Terror, evil brown people that are going to blow us up. Look at the lessons that this movie taught us. Malcolm X, who was a practicing Muslim, went to Mecca and learned, hey, there are white Muslims. There's a different perception of what's going on. That's what I got from that scene with Nelson Mandela, is that the world is a little different than sometimes the media and those around us paint it as. Let's, get it, let's bring it home and make it a little bit more realistic and a little bit more tangible for audiences to understand that's why that movie really hit me and today it's still so poignant i i think that's a great point and you know really one of the things that the the themes of this movie that really popped out to me re-watching it is this this is a movie that talks you you hear the phrasing brought up a lot about divisive speech and yes. that's kind of how they tried to paint him as a person who is dividing everybody and you know i think what Spike Lee was trying to do with this movie too, and really what he's trying to point out about Malcolm X is, it's actually the opposite of divisive to to make other people see a different perspective. It's it's not that we're trying to to tell you how different you are from us. It's that we need to show you how we see things so that you could have any hope of understanding us. And and to me, that's kind of 
the point of the movie. It's it's a theme of the movie, and it's also what Spike Lee's trying to do is to say this. You know, it was a big controversy when this movie was made that they was going to be made by a white director, and Spike Lee felt like this is not only is this a movie that needs to have the black perspective. This is a story about the black perspective and about how people started to have their eyes open to it. Right. And it's, it's again tells yet another important message that I get so frustrated. And a lot of times this is reflected in my writings at AL.com and elsewhere that there's this perception in our country that in order to have religion of racial tolerance, we have to say that we're all the same. Everyone's the same. You're no different than me. Blah, blah, blah. No, I'm very different than you. And that's great because those are the experiences that make us different. And I think the lesson that Spike was trying to say is, yes, this is a white director, but he can tell the story. He can give a different perspective. And these perspectives come together to tell this gigantic, wonderful story about this man who change the world. So embrace those differences because that's what makes America America. Do you think do you think that this movie do, do you think Spike Lee was right that this this movie needed to have inherently the the black perspective for behind the camera? Do you think that it that it could have been made by a white director? I think it could have been made it could not have been the movie we got. Of course, yeah. But it could have been done well if that director understood the story well enough. I don't think that any story has to be told from a black perspective. It is great that it can be told that way, but if that if that white director can prove that he or she can tell that perspective in a way of tolerance and in a way that is very respectful of the culture, sure. Because that kind of um, inclusiveness is what African Americans have fought for for decades and generations. So I have no problem with that, but it has to be true to the story. All right. Last thing I want to ask you about this. We're, we, we are talking about this movie as we have just watched a lot of our country's most accomplished public speakers in action. Uh, yes. And, and watching this movie, you know, he's an actor. He's a performer. He didn't write what he had to say. But Denzel Washington kills it in some of these moments in the movie where he is standing up in front of a crowd and orating and speaking. So, you know, I mean, you have to be, you have to have some natural ability to even do something like that, whether you wrote the words or not. Do you, do you think Denzel would be an effective politician? <laughs> do you think he could win a, an election? I think considering some of the candidates who have gotten as far as they've gotten, that I think, yes, he could do it. But I think the thing that the really telling part about Denzel is the passion. And that's yeah. what's missing from so many of our leaders. And that's what makes this performance, I mean, 20-some years now, I am old. But this movie has had such an impact because his passion just bleeds off the screen. And that's what really affects us. And that's what helps tell that story. I learned what growing up meant when I was 11. It meant seeing the way things really were, the hurts some of us had to live with and could never put out of mind. It meant being afraid when the lights of cars came towards you at night, knowing the men who drove them and what they could do. And it meant suffering the meannesses that folks said we had to expect. And sometimes it meant fighting back and letting loose everything that was busting to come out of you and tasting how sweet it was to be on top for once. I was still a little girl, 
living on our own land, and all of us striving together to make better what we had. So, Edward. Yes. We've been texting about this book a little bit. I've tried not to get too much into it, into our text conversations, but right. you know I'm excited about this conversation. I was very excited to give you the opportunity to chat about this. Had you read it before? You ready for something sad that I'm about to say? Go ahead. I never heard of it. You had never heard of it? I never heard of Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. It was part of our, I guess it was middle school reading book list. We mm -hmm. used to have a summer reading list, and mm -hmm. that was one of them. And I remember it was that, Born Free, and I can't remember the third one. But that was the one that stuck with me. Well, and, it, you know, it's possible that it was on a reading list at some point in my education. Zero recollection. Really? And that brought me back to our conversation with Elizabeth Huey a few weeks ago, particularly when she was talking with you about Public Enemy. Definitely. And how she said, referring to the, her history classes and whatnot, you know, man, I'm so glad that that's over. Right. Now, that was not my experience in school. I did not think, I'm so glad that that's over, because I was fortunate to have attended a fairly diverse school system. So I had some awareness of day-to-day -day stuff. Right. Some. But, you know, I'm still a middle-class white kid. And there is necessarily going to be some differences It comes experience. with the territory, no question. Right. I mean, it, you cannot change where you come from, and you shouldn't. That's, no, and you, know. you shouldn't. As long as that you recognize that your experience could be different from others, mm -hmm. that's fine. But it was it just blew my mind that one of those differences was that I've never heard of this Newbery Medal winning yes. book. And I was uh, delighted when you said a few minutes ago that this was your To Kill a Mockingbird yes. because that was exactly what I thought while reading the book. So can you unpack that statement for me a little bit? Yes, and I'm gonna use and try to choose my words very nicely because you know, I'm a native of Virginia and I know how much To Kill a Mockingbird means to the state of Alabama. And no question, it's one of my favorite books too. But the difference is, it's that Roll of Thunder just hits me and I feel like tells the black experience mm -hmm. just so much more richly. The one complaint that I've always heard about um, Mockingbird is that it has a little bit of that white savior motif mm -hmm. where it has Atticus come in and mm -hmm. being a hero and saving the day. Poor Cassie and her crew at um, on Roll of Thunder, they did not have that luxury. You saw their struggles and they were definitely... Um, many white people who were trying to help them but at the end of the day the ending is bleak and unfortunately many stories end that bleakly so and it might not end in a tidy little bow but it just is delivered with such passion and such realism that unfortunately sometimes things don't work out absolutely and I remember last summer during the events that AL.com hosted for Go Set a Watchmen mm -hmm. Somebody in the audience talked about To Kill a Mockingbird being used frequently as a way to help us understand race relations. And I remember one speaker saying, wait, really? Wait, really? And so that began a little bit of a conversation. And I believe our colleague John put together a great list of stories that were actually the black experience from the black perspective. I remember that, yes. I helped contribute to that list. It was a great list. Yeah, I really appreciated that list. And so... It was just, 
eye-opening to see, you know, much like To Kill a Mockingbird, this book is told from the child's perspective. Right. Much like To Kill a Mockingbird, there's some difficult things taking place here. But like you said, the perspective is different. The role of the white people is different. Mm-hmm. The end is different. Definitely. I do have to mention, though, speaking of white people, that the um, the character Jeremy. Yes. The little white boy who seemed so intrigued by the Logan children. He just fascinated me. And he wasn't really a primary part of the story, but it was really interesting just to see the different interactions, especially when his family was so terrible and to I the think Logans. It shows again, and I have talked about this many, many times, that racism is a learned behavior. It is not in us. So his just wide-eyed curiosity mm-hmm. to see more about these people that he just saw as people. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know more about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And if his family's doing these awful, horrible, terrible things. But he just wants to know more about these people and to mm-hmm. get to know them. I wish we could all have that kind of childlike optimism about our world. Absolutely. And, you know, this is ostensibly a kid's book. A, it is. You know, middle grade, perhaps. It's heavy. For a kid's book, it. Like I said, when I had that summer reading list, I had Born Free, which everyone loved, and I was like yawning. I wish I could remember the third book, but I remember reading Roll of Thunder second in the trilogy. And I was like, this is not going to be top. I'm a son of a librarian, so Mm -hmm. reading came very easily to me. But at that point in my life, I can't remember reading something that played out almost cinematically in my mind. Yet also, I just knew from the experiences that this was real life. When Mm -hmm. the children's mother was a teacher and they are just like dealing with these horrible raggedy books that, Mm -hmm. I mean, their education was like at risk because they were given hand-me-downs. I could relate to stories Mm -hmm. like that. And even though it was a very heavy read for middle school kids, it was one that just really resonated with me. I just couldn't turn away. I flew through that book yeah well and uh, you know speaking of the school the teacher and that moment when the people come in and say nope sorry what are you teaching this isn't in the book (sighs) again yet another thing that continues to resonate today it takes me back to we are just a few days off of the um dnc and We have some trusted political commentators who, when the First Lady of the United States will come on stage and say things like, the White House was built by slaves. And then we will have people who respond to that by saying, oh, but they were well-fed and they had good lodging, like they were up at the four-star hotel or something. There's a reason they're called slaves, too. But the point is, the experience that folks are having And the experience that we see here in Roll of Thunder, when you compare the two, those folks were giving scraps Mm hand-me-downs and told, they're okay, deal with it, it's fine, Mm -hmm. you're you're learning. I remember back when you guys couldn't read and couldn't learn, so deal with it. You you should be happy, you should be content. Those slaves building the house, Mm -hmm. oh, they had food, they Mm -hmm. had lodging, they should be content. 
like they were habitat for humanity or something. Right. The point is that you cannot continue to let people get the scraps of America and kind of champion ourselves as being the land of the free and then let folks just fall by the wayside and let those scraps and elect, expect them to be happy with it. That's something that really, really hit me again in the book. And it's something that plays out today. Absolutely. Well, and I don't care who you are or what your circumstance is. That's insulting. Absolutely insulting. And it's insulting to what this country was built on. Can you imagine if those who settled in the colonies were told by Britain, oh, you're just going to deal with those taxes. Just be happy. You're sitting over there. You got all that land. Be happy. No, our country revolted against tyranny. That's because they were put in a position where they were looked down upon. They were not allowed to have that dream. To the folks in Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, were not allowed to have the education that the Constitution gave them. And that is why we have to, even in 2016, fight for those who don't have a voice and continue to give them an opportunity to chase that dream. Well, there's one last thing that I want to touch on, and I think that this may be also related to looking forward, looking to where we are now, you also see throughout this book the challenges that people face, different families face, in getting ahead, even when they're given an opportunity. For example, the Logan family opens a line of credit. They find a backer in Vicksburg so that other families won't have to do their business with a store where the owner burned people to death. Burned them to death and everyone just quietly let it go. The poor victims are still around and we just don't talk about it. And yet even with those opportunities, the Logan family, you know, had a little more than many of the other black people in their community because they owned their own land. But they created these opportunities and people still were in many cases unable to take them for a variety of reasons because there were still repercussions right there were still people who had power over them and said you can't do that and i will be sure to undercut you if you do that's the problem with systemic racism you can't keep giving people stuff and then still undercut them because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day they cannot thrive and they Mm -hmm. cannot enjoy those advantages they have that's why I'm so adamant about cutting down systemic racism as opposed to just reparations. I don't want to get on that. <laughs> That'll be a whole other podcast. You'll bring That's me back for part two for that one. But the point is, I am all about we have to redo the system. We have to provide opportunities and allow people to be able to thrive in those positions to gain on their own feet. You can't, because if I could give the, if the Logans were millionaires, they would still be struggling in the, that, uh, that narrative from Mississippi. Unfortunately, that horrible conclusion, I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't read it, would still happen because they were not allowed to be who we say they are, Americans. So taking over your coveted spot in, yes. our little, in our little trio is uh it's intimidating so i'm <laughs> glad that i get to inter- interview you the first time well you won't meet anyone who will give you a harder time than me so oh i believe that trust me and here's the issue any of your long-term followers out there they know you hate everything <laughs> 
that gets played on the radio. You hate every album. You hate every artist. You it, you seem to take relish in just destroying artists' careers. So I think people want to know who your favorite, what's your favorite album? And so apparently it's Super Duper Fly by Missy Elliott. Yes, Why? it's hard to even say that I have a favorite album because there are so many that have meant so much to me from Nas's Illmatic to the Wu-Tang's debut to Keith Sweat's um, 1996 album. There's so much that make up who I am. But that album in 1997, I will tell you right now, when I first heard the, the smash single, The Rain, from that album, I hated it. It sounded like so much gibberish. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, I think before you told me about this album, this shows one uh, how ignorant I was until I started listening to hip hop in about 2007. I think we've talked about this yeah. before. The first two albums I owned were the Black Album and College Dropout. So that's like my entry point into hip hop. So there's a lot of this to start, early honestly. stuff where I've gone back and listened to Wu Tang Clan and I've listened to Nas and I've listened to all, a lot of the earlier stuff uh, earlier than that. But uh, I hadn't really listened to Missy Elliott. The only song I knew by the, called The Rain was that terrible Will Smith song. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't mention that in the same breath. So I went back and listened to this and it's, you know, uh, maybe it. Maybe it's because it was so pioneering at the time, but I was trying to figure out, like, it's, I saw your list a few weeks ago, it's one of your top ten hip-hop songs ever. Ever. And it's not like the lyrics, well, I mean, I, I want to hear what you have to say about it, but the lyrics don't jump out as me like, oh, that's something Edward would love. Definitely not. So what is not. it about this song that holds up for you 20 years later? Well, getting back to the story of first hearing that song, you know, try and travel back to 1997. When everybody was pretty much, the gangster rap was leading the scene. Everything was hard-hitting beats, hard lyrics, aggressive lyrics. We were starting to get into the puffy, shiny suit, bragging about my money, but we hadn't gotten there quite yet. But here comes this woman from my home city of Portland, Virginia, riding a mini, some kind of weird Hummer, wearing a garbage bag, with the most simplistic lyrics you'll ever hear, but the most mind-blowing production. When you first hear it, it's like, what is this? But you then begin to, on each subsequent listen, to appreciate the just creativity and, my goodness, it's like 20 years from now. And that song still sounds like absolutely no other song ever recorded. It just helped branch out. It widened my view of hip-hop. And it helped take it out of the box of what I thought it could be. And it really, it's like someone just like open. It's like I got, for instance, I got a new iPhone a couple weeks ago. And I took pictures with it. And I looked at the pictures and I was like, I could not believe pictures could look this clear and this vibrant. And that's how I was listening to that album for the first time. I didn't know that hip hop could sound like this, could look like this, could be presented like this. And it opened so many doors for mentally for me and it took it blew me away so you talked about the production of it and i agree it's amazing for children like me mm -hmm. give us a history lesson where is this in timberland's career i mean he kind of came onto the scene around the same time as missy elliott too and he's also your neighbor yes um just a little bit of backstory they both came into the scene early 90s with the um r&b group jodeci 
um, one of Devontae, a member of Jodeci, had this kind of subset of kind of made his own little production house called the Swing Mob. And they produced some stuff for the Jodeci album that came out maybe 95. And then they tried to do some solo stuff, but it didn't work. So Missy, Timbaland, and a few others who would go on to be big stars moved on their own. So Timbaland, at this point in 1997, Timbaland was starting to build his name as a big name producer. His big kind of breakout production was Aaliyah's um, One in a Million album, which dropped the year before. Missy was doing like some great things, doing some songwriting for Puffy and those guys. So they were really building on momentum, but they were far from the mega stars that we know them as now. They were just kind of like the new hotness on the street. So, so as a kid in Portsmouth, Virginia, I mean, you're old, but you're not like the same age as Missy Elliott. So no. she was like a few years ahead of you. So did you? Oh, this guy. <laughs> but you had graduated by the time Super Duper Fly came out. That right? was That's... the actually that was the summer I graduated. I can't remember if it actually if the album actually came out in that summer, but I do know that it was sometime around early late spring, early summer, nineteen ninety seven. So it was my graduation. But around school, I mean, did people know who she was before this album dropped? Was she sort of a local celebrity at the time? Yeah, at this point, um, in the mid-90s, a, a super music fan like me, I knew who Missy was. Um, she, We went to compete in high schools, and she, like you said, she's like maybe two or three years older than me. So I didn't know. I think she's person. seven years older than you. You're giving really? yourself a little too old. <laughs> oh, man. I, didn't, I thought we were close in age in that. Anyway. So I knew of her, and she was starting to build a buzz because by the time the Aaliyah album came out, and she was very instrumental in that project, which, again, was a landmark project for R&B because of the production was just so out of this world. See, there was starting to be some buzz around Virginia, and Virginia became like this creative incubator where you had Missy and Timbaland. A couple years later, you had Pharrell kind of, coming up and then you had D'Angelo down the road and Trey songs and go up north and you see Chris Brown and the Lady of Rage. There was just so much buzz going on at the time that people were starting to get to know who she was, but she, again, many didn't know that this major superstar was down the street. And what do you think it is about, you know, that part of Virginia? Because, I mean, you look at, like, Atlanta and it's a big city. You look at New Orleans and it's a big city and both already have these rich musical histories anyways but i mean norfolk's not that much bigger or smaller than birmingham so why why are these voices coming out there in virginia that aren't popping up in greenville south carolina or in it has to do with proximity norfolk is there is a huge naval contingent there the naval shipyard is like one of the biggest employers and you've got so much cultural diversity coming in from all over, and I think that's why the Virginia sound doesn't sound like anything. I consider Virginia the South. My wife argues with me because she says the tea isn't sweet enough, but I feel like it's the South, but it doesn't sound Southern. It doesn't really sound Northern, even though most of our musical experiences, the radio per se, was kind of New York-based songs. It's not really Midwest, but it's all of those combined. And I think it's because of that naval contingent coming in and being just such this very cultural, diverse place and allows so much creativity. So you look back at that album and it's, you know, you've got Lil' Kim, you've got Aaliyah, you've got Queen Latifah, you've got all these powerful 
female hip-hop voices mm-hmm. that are present on it, they're not the ones h- hopping in the car singing karaoke with Michelle Obama on national TV. Nope. A lot of them aren't releasing albums anymore. Right. So what is it about Missy Elliott? I mean, I don't... I wouldn't say she's the best lyricist of the bunch. I Definitely wouldn't say not. that she's... Uh, the most polished of the bunch. What is it about her that gets people hyped when she shows up at the Super Bowl? Because she continues to innovate every single time out. You can listen to all five or six of her albums. They all sound different. She never boxes herself in. And her claim to fame has always been her ability to innovate and create something new every single time. Every time she releases a video, it's an event because it's like, oh, what is Missy going to do this time? And the last video, it's like dancing puppets and she's riding around on those scooter things that people keep killing themselves on. And she continues to just capture whatever's going on in pop culture and then make it the weird Missy thing that she always does. And you can't take your eyes off of it. You can't take your ears away from it. And then 20 years later, it still sounds completely fresh and original. She just continues to reinvent every single time, and that's why she's so beloved. Especially in today's climate, when music can get so stale, and I can get so grumpy on my blogs when I'm reviewing albums. Yes, you can. You can get very grumpy. <laughs> we all know about that. Uh, you won't give some of my favorite albums five stars well, because you the... are just a grouch. Well, they need to be better, and then I'll give them five stars. Well, Mr. Miyagi, uh, please... <laughs> Help school the rest of us karate kids. If we like Missy, who should we be listening to that kind of set the stage for her? And who should we be listening to that she opened the doors for and influenced? Jeez, that's almost an impossible question because, and I'm not trying to overstate it, but really before and after, you can't really compare. I'm sure that she would want to say, you know, if you want to listen to kind of her legacy, you listen to the later Aaliyah albums, or you can listen to... Some might say Nicki Minaj. I don't agree with that. Some might say you can listen to anything from Timbaland, and a lot of that will kind of have her sound. And it's true. It will have her sound. But there's really only one, and I can't really compare her to anyone before or after. I know it's a crazy, it's a cop-out, but it's true. Well, that kind of sounds like a good description for you, Edward. So we'll miss you. Man, you're going to eat that microphone before we get out of here. All right, Edward, for old time's sake, play us out. <laughs> I got to do it one more time for the fam. Again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is being left in wonderful hands. Um, and I would like so many of my music fans out there to join me on soulandstereo.com, where you can get all the latest in music reviews, music madness, and whatever pop culture silliness I decided to rant on that day. So from me and my good friends here at AL.com. I'm John Hammontree. You can find me on Instagram at, at BirminghamonTree and on Twitter at, at John Hammontree. I am Matt Scalisi. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Scalisi. And I'm Carla Jean Whitley. You can find me various places on the internet at Ink Stained Life. We'll be back next week and I promise to stop pouting about Edward leaving us soon. Oh, love you guys. What year were you born? 79. 79, okay. Yeah. So, you know.
for the first time, I'm like saying this, we're already recording, and I'm just going to go back and delete this later, but for the first time, I think that we've recorded an episode and all been in the same room, John did not refer to himself as being way younger than everything else. Yes. I, Until the mics were off, and then he did. See, we are turning the corner. The podcast has only gotten slightly younger with this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's only slight. That's part of my Yeah. And your spirit's very old. Oh, definitely. Because like, I, I always, you I think like you're older than Emotionally, I was born in the mid-70s, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. I just had to wait around for a body for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. Yep. <laughs> and now we have our first blooper reel. Yes. <laughs> Y'all can talk whenever you All right. want. This is awesome. Okay. Do I need to do my best? Look, play it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you gotta come hard now. You gotta come hard of all of them.